0: Kia ora everyone, welcome on to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Mo speaking, and this is a little bit of an unusual episode, as it's a session which was a fireside chat with a whole bunch of other people as panelists, and this was part of the Fundraising Institute of New Zealand's annual conference. As well as being the host of Seed's podcast, I'm a lawyer, so I had been there speaking with my colleague Aislinn Malloy about legal structures for impact. And then I was also on this panel, and I took along my podcasting gear and recorded it, because I love the efficiency of amplifying the message beyond just those who were in the room. Instead, all of you can listen to what we talked about as well. And a big thanks to the entire Fundraising Institute of New Zealand FANO, for letting me do this recording and share it here. I've actually done a blog post sharing everything i learned from attending, so I'll put that as a link in the show notes in case you're interested. And a big shout out to all of the people who attended the conference, there was about 400 people there. And the panel was hosted by Michelle Berryman from Fins, and joining me were Marie Dunn, Sue Barker, Liz Gibbs, and Famoina Felolini Maria Tafunai. I hope you enjoy it. And if you do, don't forget that there's about 320 other episodes of Seeds Podcast, so you might want to check out some of those as well. Seeds is a project about capturing people's life stories and trying to understand what motivates them. And you can find out a lot more about the project at theseeds.nz. Now let's get straight into this fireside chat.
1: Flora! No my, do my, and welcome to the fireside chat. I know tomorrow's the kind of opening session, and, uh, but today, I mean, we can't say, I can't start today without going, oh my God, we're actually here. I mean, two years, four reschedules. <laughs> uh, we are here, and uh, what, a beautiful, uh, what a beautiful venue to be at, and I really hope you enjoyed your masterclass day. And um, I'm going to straight into our fireside chat today. Um, we've got some amazing guests with us today, my role is just to ask the questions, and um, Yeah, we're going to discuss a few topics today. So I'm going to go straight in and let these wonderful people introduce themselves. Sue, let's start with you.
2: Kia (laughs) ora Thank you, Michelle. Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure and an honour to be here. Um, My name is Sue Barker. I'm the director of Sue Barker Charities Law, a boutique law firm based here in Wellington, specialising in charities law and public tax law. For the last two years I've been on sabbatical undertaking research into the question what does a world-leading framework of charities law look like with the support of the New Zealand Law Foundation International Research Fellowship which I'm honoured to say is New Zealand's premier legal research award. Um, The report Focus on Purpose was released in April this year making 70 recommendations for law reform in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Wonderful. Um, We've just passed the mic over to Liz.
3: It's a pleasure to be here, and congratulations, Michelle and team, for getting it live after all this time. I'm sure it's a great relief for you um, to have it actually happening. Um, So it's a pleasure to be here. My name's Liz Gibbs. I have the um, privilege to head up philanthropy at Perpetual Guardian, which is a trust company based here in New Zealand, been around for 135 years, um, and it's our pleasure to administer around 600 charitable trusts on behalf of our clients. Um, uh, In addition, we also had the honour to acquire Give a Little um, two years ago, so that's also part of the stable Nair. So we're very interested in the charitable space, um, very supportive of the charitable sector, just about to report our last five years of charitable giving through Perpetual Guardian next week, uh, which will see us giving uh, around $288 million into communities over the last five years. Kia ora, fantastic. Kia ora. ora tātou, uh, tōtahi hi mihi tēnei uh, ki te
4: taumata. Uh, kia koutou uh, ngā mana finua, o Te Whanganui Atara, te Ateaua, Ngāti Tua, Ngāti Raukawa. Kia koutou, kua taimai, ngā mihi koutou kia koutou. Um, It's awesome to be here. Um, Yes, it's been two years. We've all kind of either been stuck on Zoom meetings or stuck inside, so it's been really nice to get out and about. Um, I want to just thank everybody that have made time to be here today uh, and those that also attended the masterclasses. It was such a nice, more intimate way to get under the hood of some of these critical issues um, facing the sector. Uh, My name's Kay marie Dunn, I'm the Director of Making Everything Achievable, Um, and in that title, um, my whole life's purpose is to work in partnership with uh, iwi Māori, Indigenous, and other organisations to help make their goals achievable. Um, My hope being here at the FINS conference is twofold. One, I'm really interested in uh, meeting new people, um, in particular those that are really great at unlocking money, um, and I'm also a strong advocate for channeling money uh, into uh, iwi Māori communities, Pasifika communities and our migrant and ethnic communities as well, who might not always have a voice and definitely might not be in this room with us um, to be part of this awesome corridor. So, Māori ora.
1: Kia ora.
5: Uh, tēnā te, te, uh, uh, te manu o tara uh, Ngāti Toa. um, Uh, My name is Whamwina Felulingi Rea Tafuna'i, a a Samoan descendant whose parents came here in the 70s and um, now I reside, born and I reside also in Christchurch. And so I am the founder of Flying Geese and what that is, is... Uh, a company that I set up really um, to try and look at how we can design better through I guess the matauranga and knowledge we have from our ancestors of celestial navigation and how, to, how do we um, look after each other on a waka. And my interest from that comes from a long um, kind of history of working in aid and development and seeing design that, you know, we talk about people centred. So I guess there's no greater place to be people-centred than on a moana when you're trying to keep everybody you know, um, on the waka. So that's been my key interest, and helping NGOs, charities, organisations design better, navigate better, look after their people better, and themselves. And so that's what I've primarily been about, but like Kei Marie, my audience that I, you know, the community I care so much about is Māori and Pacifica, are looking at inequity, looking at As a Samoan, how do I uphold the Te Tiriti o Waitangi, how do I get more people to do that? And so hopefully that's what um, the next few days is going to be about. Kia ora. And Stephen.
0: Kia ora koutou, Stephen Mo toko Hi everyone, Uh, my name's Stephen Mo. Um, As soon as I open my mouth you hear an accent. Um, But I actually moved to New Zealand in 1983. Um, My father brought our family here, so I grew up here. Um, and I work as a partner in a law firm called Perryfield Lawyers, so it's based in Otatahi Christchurch. And what I'm mainly focusing on is not so much the legal structures, but instead how do we empower purpose and impact, and then the legal structures flow from that. So that's really what I do a lot of, um, and really thinking about what the future might look like. Um, As well as that, I do a podcast called Seeds, where I've interviewed (laughs) 320 people for more than an hour each. Um, And so really trying to download stories that can inspire each other.
1: Well, I told you we had an amazing uh, group of people, and that was just them introducing themselves. (coughs) So let's get into some of the questions. The world's changed forever. We know that. And I think over the last couple of years, you know, people have had to accelerate change. They've had to diversify. We've had all the kind of jargon, all the stuff of what we've need to kind of do or be doing. Um, And as we've kind of come out, we're, you know, heading forwards, I guess I just want to ask each of you, um, what's excited you most about the last two years? We hear an awful lot of negativity, but out of, you know, out of adversity comes something quite magic sometimes um, so each um, let's start with you Stephen what's excited you most about the last two years?
0: I think one thing for me has been the fact that it's caused us to maybe question who we are mm-hmm. and what we're there for um, because the reality is the last two and a half years has not been normal right so we've had to think again about what we're doing and why so as a result of that I'm meeting a lot of people who are coming and saying I've had this idea at the back of my mind for years and years, and now I think it's time to actually try it. Mm -hmm. I think I'm going to push the boat out a bit further. I'm going to try something new. And I think before COVID and all of that, maybe people wouldn't have realized that, you know, life goes by quickly. And so there's been a re-understanding of our own mortality and the fact that we should do what we're called to with our lives. So yep. I think that's been a positive that I've seen from people.
1: Yeah, and making, I guess, the world also, I think, felt smaller. You know, it, it became that world, that kind of space to, to, to kind of get your message out. Um, what's what's been one of your kind of... What's excited you most?
4: I think that I've been excited by the unprecedented level of collaboration, um, that I've seen, particularly among our iwi across Aotearoa, when there was a threat of um, COVID. It forced them to put their patu down against each other, and then they actually had to work together, <laughs> which was amazing. That mm-hmm. in itself is, um, has been significant, particularly in uh, Te Taitokero, where um, the common enemy was um, COVID, and then working diligently on looking at how do we deploy water, how do we deploy food, how do we deploy information, how do we move through misinformation um, and support one another and keeping our households and our families safe. So that's excited me. The other um, area that's excited me was the unprecedented amount of new enterprises that popped up because so many people either lost their jobs or decided I don't want to work anymore and what I'm doing. So there was a massive uh, reset and a move towards uh, e-commerce businesses, mm-hmm. um, small to medium-sized businesses, and people just taking a risk because the world had changed yep. so much. So that really excited me. Something that frightened me, though, was the impact of disconnection on mm-hmm. our communities as yep. well. And the fact that we've had to digitise our our rituals like Tangihanga and, and the impact on our yep on our communities, but it's awesome on the other side that we had digital technology where we could beam in to these events. Not the same, um, but it's still cool that we're not as scared of technology as we used to be.
1: Yeah, and I guess going forward, we can now make that even, make things even more inclusive by using both, you know, um, it kind of created a, a situation where we can maybe experience things that we couldn't have thought of before because of kind of location and things, I, I love that answer.
5: Um, Fármóena, what's what's kind of excited you? Um, I think I think we've got more comfortable with the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I and it's not always the news we want to hear. And so, what I've seen in Aotearoa in the last couple of years is um, people understanding um, more what they don't know more, um, I guess, how we need to band together, form allies, especially when the others, you know, so on one side of truth, I love how people are saying that and the rise of tau iwi um, banding together. But on the other side, we see that there's probably more overt racism, more overt behaviours that discriminate. But for me, and especially, I guess, because of wayfinding, Being able to navigate the truth is much better than navigating what I consider to be a false environment. And that gets me excited because then I can try and find ways to include those people, you know, to remove shame and blame from those conversations and find, I guess, connection with them. So I'm excited about that. I love it. Um, Liz?
3: Well, Everyone said really interesting uh, comments, and I would concur with a lot of what you've already said. Um, I think out of uncertainty and adversity, some positive things have come. And certainly uh, looking at the funder community for a moment, the philanthropic funders, I think funders... Some funders, not all, realised that we were putting barriers in the way, uh, particularly of access to funds that really work for critical services. Thinking about food banks, thinking about, um, you know, uh, domestic violence, etc. Mm-hmm. A lot of those needs were already there. Uh, I think it shone a light on how critical those services are. and and always were, but it actually shone a light on how critical they were. And for some funders, I'm glad to say ourselves included, a perpetual guardian, it made us realise that some of our funding we could really streamline, and instead of a a process that would normally take, a grant-making process that would normally take three months, we concertinaed it down into um, three weeks. Um, And we should have done that years ago. That's
1: what I'm going to say. It's a shame that it took COVID for that to happen. Uh, We're here to kind of really, you know, Mm -hmm. get into some of the nitty-gritty. And I think it's great, but I I hope that it doesn't fall back into the way that it was. Um, Mm -hmm. I think funders definitely filled the gap. A Mm -hmm. lot of funders were like, yeah, the need increased. We're putting a lot of money, but I think... I am saying now that they're now um, kind of pulling on filling the gap with money Mm. and they're they're trying to kind of work out the best way to capacity build properly and, you know, give it sustainability. But, you know, they've still got to keep it really Mm. accessible. Mm. So I I really hope Mm. that change Mm. stays.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I completely agree with you. Um, I think it has stayed Mm -hmm. uh, at our place. I can't speak for all funders Mm -hmm. in, in my current role. Um, But I think the other thing that was really great was to see collaboration not only um, across the charitable sector but also starting to see some collaboration from the funder community. And it's Mm -hmm. very easy from a funder perspective to say, oh, we want charities to collaborate. But actually, frankly, unless we're prepared to do that ourselves, we have, you know, we have no cause to Mm -hmm. criticise others. Um, So through those structures, those funding structures that became a lot more swift and I completely agree with Mm -hmm. you, Michelle, they needed to other funders started to co-fund into a process we were already already running, mm-hmm. which was, again, sounds so obvious to do that, but don't replicate process that's already happening yeah um so yeah the, those things i think the other thing that was interesting is um because most of the ways that the funding works in my small corner of the world is off the back of investment portfolios and of course during covid um as we will all know if we looked at our kiwi saver accounts recently it's a bit depressing mm-hmm. um you know head and mm-hmm. south pretty fast and that was true for investment markets across the board um, it's starting to upturn now we could have just tightened the belt and said, right, we're going to reduce our funding. We didn't. Um, and that, uh, for me, was a really uh, very heartening thing to see, because it would have been very easy um, uh, as a as the kind of organisation and company that we are to reduce our funding, and we chose not to, because the community need was increasing.
1: Yeah. well, I mean, if we're saving for a rainy day, I don't know what other rainy day we were going to find other than COVID. So to start tapping into that capital rather than looking for the interest was but but again Critical. most
3: funders are set well, many funders are set up for in perpetuity yeah, for, yeah, so yeah yeah so you're right but the traditional approach to that investment portfolio is is to if the investment markets take a dive mm-hmm. you reduce your funding because you're looking yep. at medium long term yeah. so again i agree with you but for me working on the inside of yeah. that <laughs> particular scenario that was really heartening to see awesome no, that is very heartening and awesome. And Sue, so what, was, what was your, um,
1: what, what, what excited you? I mean, you've been deep in charity law. And I know personally from catching up with you that, yeah, there's been a, a, not a lot to be excited about recently, but
2: <laughs> <laughs> prior to that. Yes, well, I, you're right. I've been completely ensconced in this research project for two years. And, and at a micro level, uh, if I could say, I, that was very exciting that, that the New Zealand Law Foundation did invest in the charitable sector, that they considered the charitable sector was important enough to invest um, in in having a look at what a world-leading framework of charities law might look like. So I did think that was exciting. Um, And at a more macro level, what I did see from my little bubble (laughs) during COVID was, um, you know, suddenly, uh, and it kind of links in with what you were saying, Liz, but suddenly government Funds were able to be released to, to charities charities were uh, it was it was a high trust model. It was like just you know we know, we trust you to do it, here's something, just go and do it and I really did wonder where the government would have been without the charitable sector and what was really exciting was that I think they saw that you know yeah. and wouldn't it be great if that translated into a better legal framework but you know yeah, it's another story,
1: and funding for <laughs> fins would wouldn't go amiss uh, yeah absolutely um So, I want to just touch on this for us. um, We have uh, our journey on um, equality, diversity, and inclusion is just beginning. I'm very aware of that, and it's it's, this is our most diverse uh, uh, conference we've hosted, Um, and we are we're excited about the future for us, but um, I guess. It's been a, I think, for a lot of charities, a bit of a box ticking exercise. Um, But we've got a big drive at FINS to help our sector kind of move beyond that and really embed it into everything that we do. Um, So moving away from kind of the deficit models when raising funds for all communities, especially those um, labelled as marginalised. And so I guess I just want to ask is for me, um, particularly around understanding, um, it's critical that we understand who we are, the iwi, the hapu, the, the marae and the entities that are part of our communities and how do we get the right people um, part of organisations? How, so how can we ensure that those at the leadership table are those who are the t- targeted recipients? I've often wondered like when I've worked for various charities over the years um, and I guess it's the way fundraising works but you don't you don't ever kind of fundraise to people that you've supported because you don't ever, you know, don't talk. They're they're not your donors, but actually, if you've been supported by a charity, they would be your biggest advocates. Um, I've just seen it over the years I've worked, but also they don't. Um, it, none of the people that have, I guess, been on the end of services feel that they then can. Cont- once they've got through the adversity, get back and, and help make the changes that were needed, if you know what I mean? And how do we get the, right, the, the people from the communities that were there to, we exist to serve at the leadership table, in the, you know, in the positions to change the organisation? Um, I'm going to throw that out to you, Stephen.
0: It's such an easy question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, from my perspective, I can only answer aspects of that yep. question. I think others maybe will have deeper thoughts than me to share, but I know one thing that's been really profound for me in the last year, and that is I am really interested in the concept of governance. Mm -hmm. And so through that, I started to explore what is indigenous governance? What does Te'au Māori share with us about governance? And fortunately, I've had somebody to help guide me on this journey. Um, her name is Erin matariki Karr, and we've co-written a paper together. And when I was first approaching it, it was a very Western conception. Mm-hmm. It was, what are the top 10 tips that we can learn from indigenous governance? You know, like, mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a catchy, clickable title. <laughs> but I was completely missing the point. Yeah. And it took her, in her gentle way, to take me on the journey of saying, it's not just about a tokenistic top 10 list. You have to actually go deeper than that. And so I think for those of us who are Pacia, it's very important that we don't just start yeah. translating parts of our annual report mm-hmm. or having this you know, show mm-hmm. without having the substance. Yeah. So that's been the big thing for me. I can't answer the bigger question of how do we get the right people at the leadership table, but I can answer part of it that for each of us, we have to go on an, a journey ourselves before we're even ready to have that conversation and make sure that we're ready for it. Uh, And I think too often we rush it and not really understanding what we're doing. So the end of that story is that we rewrote the paper Mm -hmm. and now it's two parts. Part one is an understanding of the impact of colonization Mm -hmm. and what that's done to the legal system here and the flow on impact in terms of legal structures that are available Mm -hmm. and what that means. And then the second part we go into more this what does it mean from a real holistic view yep. to talk about indigenous governance? So yeah,
1: I guess that's a personal question for me because I am in the sector because of my own adversity and the own experiences I had um, through the care system and got help. And I was, when I kind of found my way, I just wanted to give back to the organizations that helped me when I was youth at risk, you know, and I was like, I, I want—I saw all the shit that they did wrong. I wanted to go back in and tell them that didn't work. Please, can you do it differently? And so, you know, I guess, um, Kate okay, Marie, what's—how do we empower the the communities to, to yeah, feedback on maybe organisations that could do better?
4: Yeah, it's. Uh it's a it's a good question. <laughs> so just following on from Stephen's lead, I think, you know, I was, um, I was in this wonderful room um, today with some amazing practitioners from the community doing great work like Life Flight Trust and Hone um, St. John's and Plunkett and Save the Children and all of these amazing organisations had come to understand how can we build stronger partnerships and relationships with iwi Māori organisations. And one of the first thoughts that I had is, you know, my life, I have been, my father was flown on a helicopter to the hospital um, when he passed, sorry, you know, when he had a stroke. Um, We've had to use Hatohone St John's ambulances to get to and from the, um, the hospital, we've had to, I didn't get to sponsor a child from Save the, Save the Children, um, but I've also utilised Plunkett services. I've worked there, but I've also had to use Plunkett when my baby was born. And so, as a Māori, with these services, they are often services that are done to us. But there's never really an invitation to say, hey, how would you like to give back to us and there 's a couple of structural reasons why whilst the entities themselves are amazing and they are doing crisis work or interventions within community, they are not people that tend to look like me mm-hmm. so they're not they don 't look like me and so they're kind of involved in this process of getting me from point A to point B, but at no point is there an invitation that says, "Hey Kay Marie, would you like to?" Um, participate in our organisation in different ways. I may get a letter from one of those institutions that says, hey, thank you for helping us. Um, Could you please give us a a donation? donation? (laughs) But other than giving a donation, there isn't really another way that these organisations are trying to connect with me and create an invitation. I am 100% certain that people would love to take up the opportunity to give back to volunteer if the invitation was made. And therefore, my challenge to all of that is how many organisations have a structural strategy document that really elevates mm-hmm. the relationship at a governance level, uh, at an institutional level, at an organisational level, and also at an operational mm-hmm. level where Māori, Pacifica, migrant communities can see themselves and that there's also a direct strategy that invites our communities to participate because I was saying earlier, our people, we're not, we're not slow at fundraising. We are experts at fundraising. Whoa. Batons up, raffles, yeah. um, whatever. You can sell stuff out of, the, you know, out of the boot of your car to make money, you know, especially when you don't have much. You understand what it takes to, to kind of you know, throw your hat around. So that's not a new thing for Māori communities. What isn't done which we're still trying to work out is the invitation from the philanthropic sector to invite Māori around the table to say, hey, you might have an idea or two Mm -hmm. about how we might restructure our um, organisations. Hey, you actually might want to give something, you know, like a dollar, two dollars, five dollars, whatever, but we don't ask, and we don't ask in a way that I think is befitting the people. um, And so you're focusing on high-net-worth individuals yep. or middle-class individuals, but we're not actually inviting and asking our whānau how might you want to give and participate.
1: And also, I think as well, I, I know when I worked at... Um, I don't actually, probably shouldn't say the organisation, but when um, I did work with a lot of families who... Um, the situation they were in was, despite the the, 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 ch- the childhood cancer that they had, um, the. Uh, being able to ask them what their experience was, and you know, the structure was: you get this much petrol vouchers, you get this much, this much. You know, it was all very structured. The family needs this, and it was great. So every child experiences the same thing. But at what point do you say, did that work for you? You know, you know, did, could we have done it better? And I think that's kind of that. That's where um, it's slightly kind of left field of fundraising, but about understanding our service delivery it is connected because if we make sure that our service delivery is meeting the needs of the communities, we can tell the stories that will get them on, you know what I mean? So it's all kind of together and I think making sure that what we think we're delivering is actually what our communities need and that seems to me to be the easiest place to start the conversation is like, did we look after you? What did we miss? You know, And bring them in um, in that way.
5: Uh, has anyone else got anything to add on, on kind of that topic, Famowina, before we move on? I, I think you're right about the invitation and how sometimes when we think we're giving, um, we're giving the thing that we want to give, right? And that might not be the thing that's yep. needed. And so, um, like, in, for our company... Uh, with the voyaging, which I'm part of, with the um, Chitoki Voyaging Trust, um, I'd been doing a lot of work where, you know, if they needed banners, and I'll go pay for banners, and, you know, I'll go do this. But actually, in talking to their kaihotu, and there was a bit of tension, I guess, in that they saw that I'm doing wayfinding, it's becoming more popular, it's working well, um, and although I'm contributing in as many ways as I could think of, including, you know, going and serving and doing walker maintenance, then I, well, what do you need from me? And um, then Hotu was like, money. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what about our relationship? <laughs> and But then I sort of went back and I'm like, you know, I asked the question what he needs. He told me what he needs. He knows it the most. Mm-hmm. And so now our company gives 10% of our revenue to Te toki as a way to, um, to acknowledge where the mataranga, where the knowledge comes from, treaty reparations. And I think it's that direct ask, that invitation. Mm -hmm. Because of everything I was doing before, even though it's probably equal to the same amount, um, was not what they needed. Like, they could go elsewhere and raise grants for all the things that I was paying for. But what they needed, the hole in their walker, was actually cash. So... I think it is the invitation, but also in the first question, how do you get those people? It's by design. Mm-hmm. It is what you're saying. It's structure. It is if they're missing, then actually to do that mapping, invite them in. I think that's the only way we do address inequity. Mm-hmm. And like Stephen was saying, you would always have the people who you're trying to help at the table, because so many of us get removed, you know, the higher we get up in our careers, we're less on the grassroots, we're less down there, and we should always have them there and consider that their lived experiences are the ones that we need to actually take real stock of.
1: Uh, uh, yes, I think that's super, super important. Um, I just want to go on to talk about kind of um, funding a, a little bit more. Um, the debate over fundraising costs, this is a bit of a beef of mine, um, you know, it's the same story I think over, the, over and over, a lot of organisations in New Zealand were set up about 40 years ago by volunteers in the community, um, they identified a gap or a need, let's set up, we need to raise some money, but I think the concept of charity when it kind of was developed that 100% of this money is going to the people that need it. Um, and nobody. And, and that narrative stuck in a lot of people's heads. Um, so kind of beyond, you know, charities have compliance. They've got legal, they're businesses. And so this kind of how much in the dollar is going to the actual recipient. It's always brought up in the news. It's always a good news story. Um, and our uh, uh, one example is here uh, getting investment in professional development like what people will learn over these n- next three days there was a study done in 2015 that for every um, item of for every piece of fundraising uh, professional development a fundraiser goes to returns on average 27,000 dollars to that charity which I think I did a bit of numbers with this, cha- uh, this conference is potentially 10.8 billion do- uh, dollars being returned to charities to people <laughs> just coming here um, But it's hard, it's a hard sell. I spoke to CEOs, like, are you sending your team? Can't afford it. I'm like, okay, we've got to be careful what we're doing with donors' money. Um, And my argument to that too is, uh, in the top 10 charities every single year, four of them, five of them are universities. It tells me Kiwis, everyday Kiwis believe in education. So if you told your donors that two cents in your dollar is gonna educate our team to give them the latest tools and techniques would they really have a problem with it? But they're so kind of, it's donors' money, we can't spend any money on professional development. Um, and I find that really difficult. It's an investment. And I think we can all agree that we need to um, kind of invest in our staff. It's super important. And I think I'd like to ask you, Stephen, um, how important is professional development and, and learning? And, and you've spoken to so many people these are people that are always doing things, aren't they?
0: Yeah, I, I would say lifelong learning is the key. I could mm. just leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I attended a course re- relatively recently run by the IOD, and there was 25 really experienced directors around the tables. Yeah. And you would have thought that like, these are people who are you know, director of Air New Zealand and five listed companies, and like, they're really experienced and I was surprised that the theme that came through from them was that you have to always be learning. You have to always be refreshing yourself. And one of the people shared that they viewed their own learning as having a 20% depreciation rate. So for those accountants, that's kind of a joke, I think. But after five years, you know, 20% after five years, it would be, you'd be less valuable than you were at the beginning. So the result is that you have to keep investing in yourself and keep learning every year, getting more and more, you know, because we can never sit still and just be complacent with what we know.
1: Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's uh, Liz. Uh, any tips on you being in fundraising? Um, okay. If fundraising, you know, if teams can't get the money, you know, there's no budget for you, no budget for you to do anything. Mm. I mean, how yeah. do we how do we change that kind of narrative and, and kind of really invest in fundla- fundraising and ph- philanthropy
3: in New Zealand? Yeah, I think it's a really valid point. Um, essentially, I think it's an education process, which yep. I know Fins is doing. Yep. So you know, we try. good on you. Um, uh, and it's an investment approach, as Stephen has just alluded to as well. So um, the 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 old mantra, which is very traditional and still around, that, you know, charities should function on the scent of an oily rag, not pay their staff properly, not invest in their professional development, is just nonsense. You know, you would not run a business like that. So why should you run a ch- charity like that? Um Equally, you know, uh, Sue and I earlier were talking about some of the legislative proposed changes mm-hmm. to charities law, which Sue can talk about way maybe yeah. more um, accurately and in from an informed position than I can. But, you know, some of the thresholds of what charities can maintain as reserves that are being mooted are ridiculous yep. you know and it's the same principle actually you know if you if you're going to run a sustainable organization whether it's a charity or a business the, you know you want to have um reserves you need to be able to pay your staff properly you need to be able to invest in your staff and in product development whatever that product development happens so to why be. do you
1: think it's so hard to get funding for core costs for for
3: oper- for staff salaries for you know operational costs <coughs> yeah I, I think for some funders they still don't fully understand that argument um being really honest about that Um, Certainly, uh, our teams, we've spent now a lot of time trying to reframe their um, granting decisions around impact and investment in organisations. And so that changes the narrative, um, which I think is actually very helpful because it's an investment approach in that organisation. So that might mean for, you know, um, Women's Refuge, for example, you know, to pay core operating expenditure and salaries is a really good investment in that organisation. Um, you know, many of my clients are high net worth individuals and it is it is an education process um, for them. Often it's much more attractive from a high net worth point, viewpoint, um, depending on who you're talking to of course, to say, oh, we're helping to fund these core you know, education programmes for um, underprivileged children, rather than I'm paying for 10 salaries to make that work possible. So I I do a lot of that Mm -hmm. kind of communication with with both my clients and also with our staff. And people, once they understand that investment approach and you reframe it as an investment um, approach, they do change their view. And certainly we're seeing that um, happening. But not all funders, you know, different funders approach these things in very different ways. Some things also I would say is is some funders have uh, set up with trust deeds which can be quite pejorative and quite narrow in their Mm -hmm. definition of what they can and can't fund. And to change trust deeds um, is not always an easy exercise. So, um, and that that really harks back to your point, Michelle, about some charities were set up many years ago when we weren't probably having this this kind of dialogue, you know. So that's really, again, about... Um, Our view um, is to is to try and educate and inform people, and to come up with the best approach. Great. Now I know we are going to do quite a bit on the charities
1: law because there are some changes happening that's about to go to the select Mm -hmm. committee that are super important. Um, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come to you, Sue, because it's quite a really important topic because I don't think many people realise what is about what the government are about to do. Following this conference, Finns really need to do a piece of education around it, so I want to leave some time for that. Um, but one of the things I um, do want to talk about is um, social enterprise. Um, so we're, the fundraising world is changing. We're moving beyond the binary conception of either you're a charity or you're a business. Stephen, this is very much in your kind of wheelhouse. Um, the kind of for-purpose organizations and, and things, um, sometimes charities start in businesses. Sometimes businesses are starting charities. Um, what does all this mean for fundraisers? How does, how does it work from a legal perspective? And how do different structures impact on organizations that want to do good in the world?
0: You know, that was the subject of the masterclass just before. <laughs> so it's, um, it's definitely something I'm seeing as a trend. Mm-hmm. And I guess I would frame it like I talk about paradigm shifts of thinking. And I think if you look at what we think of the world today, we're like fish in the goldfish bowl. We assume that this is the way it's always been. But my challenge to us is that kind of deeper beyond that specific question, it's actually let's take a longer perspective, like a 100-year perspective, a 200-year perspective, and look back with with the generations to come through their eyes, what are they looking at our current system that we assume will always be this way. Because if we could go in a time machine back 200 years, there was no such thing as companies. They did not exist. Mm -hmm. They're a fiction. They're not really there. And so could we reimagine not just business, but also charity? Um, And bound up for that is something that I think is a fundamental flaw in this sector, is that we talk about the not-for-profit sector. Mm -hmm. And I think we should be talking about the for-purpose sector. And it's not framing what we do by reference to it not being something. It should be about what we do stand for. It should be for purpose. So what I'm seeing is that increasingly charities are looking at business and setting up business as a way to achieve their impact and purpose in a sustainable, profitable way. And equally, this might interest you, I'm seeing lots of businesses setting up charities or foundations and saying, we also want to have impact. So I'm helping on both sides of that coin. And I think that there increasingly, if we take that 100-year view, there will be more of a blurring between charity and for-profit business as we start to expect higher standards from business as much as we do from charity. So
1: I'm going to just, I don't do politics much, but I'm just going to throw something out there that... It's not going to, you know, it's a rumor that's always there, um, and you know, the government tend to kind of the the whole tax debate around charities being taxable. What would be the impact if um, the tax exemption was removed from the business parts of charity organisations?
0: To anybody or to me? I get all the easy ones. (laughs)
1: You've got the mic and then I'll pass it over to uh, ask the rest of the group. Well, I think,
0: first of all, I don't think that that should happen because I think that there's a vast misunderstanding of the value that charities bring to society Mm -hmm. if you're trying to argue that. Mm -hmm. So I would hope that we can, as a sector, raise up and not have that happen. I actually am more interested in the flip side of that question, so I'm going to answer that question, mm-hmm. which is what would it look like if we actually incentivized entrepreneurs to set up for-purpose businesses where they were achieving outcomes that are societally good? What would that look like? Because I think that would encourage the rangatahi, the next generation, to be approaching the businesses that they're setting up in a really different way. Yeah. And if they got some concessions, then that could change the dynamics. And if New Zealand could lead the way in this, we could actually set a template for the rest of the world. So, yeah, I think that that's another angle on it.
1: Interesting. I might just flip it back now. Um, we, could, we have mentioned collaboration. Farmina I mean when um, you know, funders are asking for lots of collaboration, They're at, you know, um, funders are wanting organisations to collaborate more. What does, what, is, what, what does collaboration mean? What does, what does that look like um, in your world?
5: Um, well, firstly, I have a role of um, I only work for and um, with people I love. So that looks like a lot of love. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and it's how we choose to collaborate. I mean, one of the things about our model is the importance of developing a, a values compass. And I always, you know, tell people this is how you... It's not just how you steer your walker or how you hire your people based on these values. It's how you also choose your collaborators. I'm just going to... See. Yeah, I just um, have to, uh, a public announcement.
4: <laughs> oh, kia ora. Look, I have to apologise to my team, and I'm certain that you'll be able to um, lean in on the... Uh, the charities piece. Um, I have to disappear. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we're going to collaborate together, thankfully. My mate here gonna, is going to um, hold the space for gonna me. She's going to just send the signals and you'll answer. Yes, please. Um, but I just wanted to leave uh, two key pieces um, just for consideration. The first one is collaboration, I think, at its core, is really around partnership and the importance of the agreement and um, agreeing to work together, love on each other and support each other in the relationship. So I think that's very critical. Um, secondly, the art of collaboration. So um, as Liz mentioned, we want The sector to work more effectively together. We expect it to but the actual practice of choosing to is still not coming through yet and I am concerned about it and I guess the only way that we can move it from we expect to we will is that we need some trailblazers to actually just start and it would be awesome if FINS or other entities would start to highlight groups that are prepared to step forward and demonstrate what it's like to step out of the mould or take a risk or build high-trust relationships because I feel that that's very, very um, important. And my last point, because then I want to try and get it in as much as I can before I leave it to Whamwina to um, manage for us, is um, social enterprises are still weird institutions or weird entities for Māori in regards to um, us seeing ourselves as social enterprises. So I love this thought of being for purpose Um, and ensuring that our focus is on what we can do, um, and also that if you want healing and well-being and fractured communities to grow and prosper, we must look after those that are doing the caring in the community. And that means a fair living wage, investing in their development, supporting them to grow, um, and doing whatever you can to protect them and it shouldn't be that that's a capex, we're not going to invest in that because how do you expect organisations to do what they need to if they aren't resourced to do it properly if you do that it's a half pie job it's not fair, you wouldn't expect a business or government to do it like that so why would we expect our charities to have to try and fumble their way through um, on the memory of the smell of an oily rag. <laughs> Kia ora
1: I would I accept your challenge and uh, we will, I think, uh, to highlight charities that have done it well. Can we say a big round of applause for Kay Marie?
5: Thank you. Um, and just on that point, I do um, want to acknowledge, actually, a funder that we're working with, which is Te the Whānau Order Commissioning Agency for Te Pounamu. We have a current project um, called Weddle, which is Wayfinding for Rangatahi Entrepreneurship. Yes, it's about entrepreneurship, but it's actually more about addressing racism in schools that profile Māori and Pasifika as not being potential business people. So this funding relationship, not only did they go and seek 50% of the funding from MSD, they then gave us one of, we said we'd love to have invited that one of their staff could join us and because then they could build their capacity, they gave us a young woman from Ngati Liana Liana Pardo, who's also a um, data analyst, mm-hmm. also Ngati, so she's also um, Te Reo First Language. So on our waka, we then had this wonderful young woman and that she was on succumbin into our team for about a month um, at the same time, she still had sort of work deadlines, but really amazing, I guess, from a funding point of view, that the collaborator is the funder, but the trust that was built. And I think if we're doing something unusual, mm-hmm. this is unusual. And not only that, they then we talked about year two funding, and you know we're talking about putting together an investment brunch. Mm-hmm and bringing inviting other parties to it that they think might be interested and in, that we've met along the way in showing the evidence so i think that collaboration in what they're telling us this is what we need from a funder point of view and i'm saying this is what i can bring the t- to the table mm-hmm. from you know a delivery point of view in terms of you know a project and I'm one of these people that have a business that are then setting up a charitable trust, and I'm doing that actually through Stephen. And why I've done that is because I like the flexibility of being able to create a project or a program in the business and then go, oh, there's more investment fundraising opportunity if I put it in the charitable trust and move that there, and vice versa. So I I see that as kind of maybe where economic benefit lies, but... Also, that end goal of having the most impact in the community as possible.
1: Beautiful. I, I absolutely love that. Now, I want to move on to um, – oh, somebody outside. Do you want somebody to shut that door? You're lucky because I, I do have a mobile um, cell jail that is going to be on the main stage from tomorrow morning, and um, your phones will be locked in there for two hours if it goes off in the main auditorium. You can get it out of jail for a $20 donation at the finn stand, so be warned, no phones tomorrow. Um, okay, Sue, so, this is a big wee. Um Would you like to tell us, you can say it much more eloquently than I do, but we're, 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 we're talking about... Um, We're going back to it was good news when the newly elected uh, Labour government um, announced that in 2017 they were going to do the first principal um, review of the 2005 Charity Act. It was what we wanted, it was what we were promised, and we were pretty excited. And then,
2: over to you. Yes, well, we've been waiting for it Oh, we've been, thank you. <laughs> we've been waiting for a proper first principles post implementation review of the Charities Act since the original charities bill was almost completely rewritten at select committee stage and then rushed through under urgency without proper consultation. In the 18 years since, uh, the gains that the charitable sector made during that process have been slowly eroded through a series of piecemeal amendments, usually done by statutes amendment bill, often over Christmas when they you know, might not be noticed, and again rushed through under urgency without proper consultation, what we now have is a, an Act that's full of unintended consequences and is actually doing more harm than good. And it was um, wonderful news when the Labour Party made it their manifesto for the 2017 election to finally do the proper first principles post-implementation review of the Charities Act. The review that we've got is nowhere near <laughs> a first principles review. It was attenuated in the first place because, and I've requested information under the Official Information Act, and the DIA specifically advised p and Henare before there was any consultation with the charitable sector, no, 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 don't do a proper first principles review. We don't need to do that. Just do these issues that we think you should do. So we got an attenuated terms of reference from the word go, and then the, the review has been further attenuated down to just five issues And the proposals that were announced on 2 June 2022, which I don't know if you've seen, but um, they're couched in these terms that would benefit New Zealand's communities, and from my experience as a member of the core reference group and having been through the entire review process since 2017 – Those proposals will do nothing at all to benefit New Zealand's communities. They are more likely to act perversely to preclude the real issues from being addressed. Almost every issue of concern for the charitable sector has been taken off the table. All they will do is increase charity services' regulatory powers when there is no evidence of any need for such additional powers. Um, If you read the Department of Internal Affairs' regulatory impact statement, they speak, even the DIA in its own statement, speaks of inadequate consultation, inadequate problem definition and a lack of evidence to um, support the proposals. So in my view, um, we should be very concerned about what is proposed. I've actually got them here. (laughs) And I did a a little colour-coded analysis of uh, which were good and which were bad and which were neutral. Two of them are good. They're proposing to extend the time frame from 20 working days to um, 60 working days. Great. Most of the rest of the proposals will do more harm than good. And what really worries me is that um, people seem to be being lulled into this false sense of security. Oh, they're going to benefit communities. Don't worry about it, charitable sector. We've got it under control. So I do wonder what it will take, and I've um, wrote an article following the Supreme Court decision on Family First asking whether this might be what it takes for the proverbial charitable sector frog to jump out of the increasingly boiling water. Because what I see is that charities go, oh, well, however hard you make it, we'll just find a way around it and we'll adapt but, you know, the charitable sector actually really needs to stand up for itself, or we are going to be stuck with very harmful law. At the moment, we have probably the most restrictive charities law framework for charities in the common law world, and I say that building on two years of research in all these comparable jurisdictions interviewing several hundred people from all around these jurisdictions. I'm very concerned about what we've got, <laughs> and I'm very concerned that what is proposed is going in the wrong direction. So um, the the government, just tell me to
1: stop. Uh, no, but I'm <laughs> just going to. I'm just going to. I think because a lot of ch- You know, me and Sue have we met um, a few weeks ago, and uh, yeah, a, a profound meeting for me. But you know, and she said to me, Michelle. I think they, something similar happened over in Australia, um, and the charities kind of, when it got so far, the charities went, hang on a minute, no. And they were able to halt it. They got their first principal independent review, it was about 18 months with three people, and what they now ha- have is incredible. It's, it's a, a great example of what we want. And, you know, Sue, so your question to me was when um, we were talking about it was, Michelle, why do you think charities don't care? And I said, charities are in the weeds like the past two years they have just been on survival mode they don't have time to think about this stuff and and also because a lot of it is around the it's kind of wrapped up around registration um which if you've already got a charity why are you worried about registration but what the 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 flip side of that is along with registration process, is the deregistration process. So now that it's all internal with DIA internally and the appeals process, DIA, correct me if I'm wrong, but DIA will now have the ability to, um, if they deem fit, that if a charity has kind of moved out of the scope of their purpose through advocacy or, or through whatever they, you know, their, their core purpose is, they can deregister a charity at any point, and you know, it's internally it's a decision made by DIA. There is no independent body going to you know analyse this deregistration process. Um, that is that is dangerous. I mean, what? It, how far away are we going to be able to move from our our core purpose, particularly around advocating in the health sector when um, you know things are changed in the, the legal framework around medicines and things? So, that's kind of you know. I think that's why I think because they've been so busy with COVID, they haven't stopped. And like Sue says, the devil is in the detail. If your CEO isn't here, you guys have to be alarmed about this, eh? and understand the detail that they're trying to push through in the select committee. Mm -hmm. My next question to you, Sue, but maybe you can,
2: was I right? (laughs) Was that a rough, a fair summary? Absolutely. And And I think there's a clash of underlying paradigms here. You know, one paradigm sees charities as merely an underfunded service delivery arm of government limited to being pale limitations of the bureaucracy, whereas the other paradigm sees the independence as charities as critical to what makes them distinctive and valuable. Charities have been the key incubators of innovative solutions to intractable uh, problems since time immemorial, but we are currently preventing them from playing their traditional role. And then, you know, we're getting all these questions, well why do we have charities? I, I, that was the first time I'd heard that question, but that came through in the research. Why do we have charities? People are asking questions, and I I do think these are symptoms of the framework undermining trust and confidence in charities structurally. We've got a couple of minutes. Um, Sue, what can we do? (laughs) Well, the government is pushing everybody to deal with this at the select committee stage. So they're they're working as we speak, behind closed doors, drafting a bill, uh, implementing these proposals into proposed legislation. And they're pushing us to deal with this at the select committee stage. But the problem is... Say the bill that they put in is is a boat (laughs) and we might be able to change the paint colour or we might be able to change the type of steering wheel. But what we really need is a plane. (laughs) And trying to turn unhelpful legislation around at select committee stage is what got us into this mess in the first place. I mean at the very least they should issue an exposure draft bill like they did for the incorporated societies, but Questions have been asked in Parliament, and they're not going to do that. I do think it's a huge risk to to leave this to the select committee stage. And, you know, Labour has an absolute majority. They, they can rush things through under urgency, and, you know, they might want to just get this through and so they can tick it off. And if the experience of Canada is anything to go by, once we get unhelpful legislation in place, it could be decades mm. before it's able to be turned around, if ever. So I really do think prevention is better than cure in this space. And
1: that's why, Fins, um, we've just been so tied up with conference, but we need to give our charity members, we've you know we got over 400 members, about two and a half, three thousand 3,000 individuals. If we, we're we going to work together on some messaging over the next couple of weeks and, and kind of pose the questions um, to the charities, I think, that redine legislative, uh, kind of, you know, d- we're, we're going to workshop this, get it out there. At the end of, you know only the people can change. It's the people power. And Finns are going to lead and, and ask you to get behind this. If the charities aren't going to respond, there's not, you know, that, that's the only way it was stopped in Australia. Um, so we are going to be putting a call out for some more information. We might do some, a, a bit of a workshop up in Auckland. But um, it's critical that you find this report, the devil in the detail, and um, respond to the emails that come out because. If there's enough voice from the charity sector, and Finns are one of the, the peak bodies representing that, we can hopefully create the momentum to say, halt, stop where we are and look at an independent review. Because like Sue said, if this goes through, it's decades before anything can be undone. So on that word, I'd like to thank all of my guests today. Please give them all a round of applause. APPLAUSE <laughs> And uh, the, do- the-, the show is over, but when you go outside, there's canopies and bubbles for the welcome function. And come back for ewe Talk tonight. We've got Kembernet coming in live, 10 fundraisers, seven minutes each to tell us, I wish what they I- I I'd wish thought of that. Uh, pizza, beers, and bubbles. The doors will open at quarter seven, but we do have a live feed coming from the UK. So we want everyone seated with their pizza and their, their bubbles or mm-hmm. beers at quarter past seven. But go and have a drink right now, and um, kia ora.
0: Well, I do hope you enjoyed that fireside chat. If you did, then don't forget there's more than 320 other episodes of Seeds in the back catalog, and you can find out a lot more about the project at theseeds.nz. Until next time!